0: Kia ora and welcome to the Female Career Podcast. My name's Anna Johnston and I work as a leadership and career coach for women. I'm looking forward to sharing with you an inspiring collection of career stories of a diverse range of women of Aotearoa New Zealand. I hope that by listening to these stories, you'll feel inspired in your own career. If you do enjoy the story, please head along to our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we have lots more stories of wonderful Kiwi women and their careers. We'd also love you to subscribe to our podcast so that you have all the episodes at your fingertips, and please do tell your friends and family about it too. For now though, I hope you enjoy listening to this career story.
1: I'm
0: really looking forward to speaking today with Karen Rangi Karen is of Cook Islands Māori descent from the islands of Rakahanga, Manihiki, Rarotonga and Aitutaki. She's a highly experienced governance practitioner and also has a passion for Cook Islands Māori dance, music and cultural history. Karen is acting chair of the Arts Council of New Zealand. She's also a board member for Radio New Zealand, as well as Pacific Cooperation Broadcasting Limited, the Museum of New Zealand Te Papa Tongarewa, Pacific Home Care Services and Pacific Inc. Limited. Karen's also a board director of the Cook Islands Investment Corporation in Rarotonga and in this role is leading work to develop professional board directors in the Cook Islands. Karen's an accountant by background and in 2015 was conferred as a Fellow of Chartered Accountants Australia in New Zealand. In 2018, Karen was made an Officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit for her services to governance and to the Pacific community and was named as the Linden Estate Hawke's Bay Business Leader of the Year. I'm really looking forward to speaking today to Karen and hearing more about her career journey. Kia ora, Karen, and thank you very much for joining me. Kia ora, Anna, and Happy New Year. We've made it to 2021. We have. I think everybody's quite relieved to have 2020 over and done with and looking forward to a a new year, absolutely. So I would love to, for my first question, um, take you a little way back, if I may, and think back to when you were a child or, or even a teenager. What were you thinking about in terms of your career?
1: I had a fairly eclectic mix of things I was interested in for quite different reasons. The first one was, I was keen for a long time on being a librarian. And that was because my very naive idea of working as a librarian was to be surrounded by books all day, not to have to talk to other people and be able to read what I like. So uh, I think I was dreaming in that respect. (laughs) The second one was to be a pharmacist. And I don't even really know where that came from, but... um, I suspect I might have had a conversation with someone one day and it just popped into my head. Needless to say, I didn't follow that one very far because I wasn't too great at science and, as it turned out, not really interested. But the third area that I uh, was really keen on was to be a professional Cook Islands dancer because at the time, around sort of my sixth form year, uh, Cook Island dancers were starting to be paid professionals out there in the big wide entertainment world. And because I love dancing, I couldn't think of a better job, you know, being paid for dancing. Um, My parents weren't that keen on that. And so you could say I completely went to the dark side and decided to do an accounting degree.
0: Fantastic. And um, I, I myself, I did dancing at a ballet for 10 years and there is that sort of point in time where you go, oh, well, should I, you know, should I make this as a career or should I go down more the traditional, perhaps stable, sensible routes uh, as, as you go through and parents often quite have quite an influence on that. Now you did, as you said, you went down the accounting route and I think then started your career in, in the public sector as an auditor. You know, tell me a bit about the kind of the highlights and challenges of, of the first few years of your career.
1: Sure did, and I probably, um, these days, I'm more likely to describe myself as an auditor rather than an accountant, because I think I was probably a better auditor than an accountant. My first sort of seven years of being out there in the working world were spent a, a couple of years doing good old bread and butter auditing in the public sector, but then I took up a job in the head office of what was the Auditor General's office, and became a Well, a policy advisor, really, and a role that didn't actually exist. I was able to build it myself uh, in the area of local government. Two things for me out of that time was, one, I had the most fabulous boss. In fact, he probably spoiled me. I never had a boss as good again. (laughs) And he gave me lots of opportunities and pushed me right out of my comfort zone. And the second thing, I guess, was I started to look around in the in this professional area of auditing and accounting and realizing that there weren't many Cook Islanders there. There weren't many from my culture, even from the wider Pacific community. And I started to think a bit about what that meant from a responsibility point of view to, you know, to do the job really well, whatever job it was that I was doing.
0: And for me, that's really interesting. And I think that's probably still the case in terms of whether you look at accounting or in the legal profession, it's changing now that there's more people from the Pacific community actually in some of those professions. But there is that, as you say, that kind of sense of responsibility that maybe comes for yourself being um, being one of few at the early stage of your of your career. You know, it sounded like accountancy was something that your parents maybe encouraged you into. You know, what was it about that whether it's auditing that specific part of the area or accounting more generally, what was it or what is it that you still enjoy about that?
1: Well, you know, it was a practical decision really to uh, do an accounting degree. My mother had a good friend who at the time was managing the audit office in Napier and she said to mum, you know, we're offering scholarships for people who want to do business studies degrees at Massey. Mum thought this was quite a good idea and I, at the time, thought, well, I'm not really, you know, I'm 18, I'm not really sure what I want to do apart from be a dancer, why don't I just go and do it, at the very least i will come out with some useful skills, and even if I really don't like it, it's a base to work from. So that's kind of what happened, and if I fast forward all these years later, I think my my role on boards have really been helped by the fact that I've got that sort of auditing framework to think through, and I apply that consistently at all the board tables I so sit at. And I
0: think um, a lot of people find that actually that those skills that they've gathered in their early stages of their career, so for example, the auditing side, that can be super helpful on a board. And if you think about one of a board's fundamental roles is about managing risk, then having some of that mindset and must be hugely helpful. And so then you you talked obviously about, you know, the fact that you're now on a number of board roles. What was it that prompted that path into governance?
1: Yeah, well, initially um, I fell in, uh, <laughs> like quite a few other people I know. I was um, I didn't have any aspirations in particular, probably because I didn't know much about the world of governance. I I didn't really know people who were on boards. But what happened was in sort of early two thousands, government decided to set up a national Pacific radio network specifically to serve Pacific communities. And so they wanted to set it up sort of like a crown entity and they were looking around for board members. And the minister at the time was quite keen that the board members be of a range of professional skills, but also that they be of Pacific descent. And this was going to be the first all-Pacific board in New Zealand. And I say to people, it was my first board experience and I accepted the role purely out of ego because somebody asked me and said, oh, you'd be great on a board. And so I thought, oh, I must be going to be great on a board. (laughs) You know, I didn't know, I had no idea what the actual job was, which feels terribly irresponsible. But I was interested enough to be sitting there in in the decision-making processes about that really exciting, you know, building a radio network. So that's how I got there. And that was the National Pacific Radio Network, which now, which produced radio station New FM and 531PI. And these have become really important parts of our wider Pacific community and, and the communication of, of our stories. So I'm really pleased about that. But it was um, it was damn hard work starting something from scratch. I took up the treasurer's role on the board and I signed a, in the first week a cheque for around about $7 million to buy 17 radio uh, transmitters for the country. And my hand was shaking a fair bit because it was a fairly big amount of money. And a good reminder that we really needed to get this right, um, not just for the Pacific communities, but for New Zealand. And
0: fascinating. And, and I guess it sounds like that hit home in terms of the responsibility that comes with being being on a board. And if I'm right, you have kind of continued that, uh, some of the government's work in the area of broadcasting. I believe you were on uh, New Zealand On Air for a while and now still Radio New Zealand. What is it about the broadcasting area that, that particularly interests you?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about that till sort of a bit later on when I was really when I was actively seeking to get a position on the Radio New Zealand board. When I joined the National Pacific Radio Network as a board member, one of the drivers for me was the fact that I can remember my own parents being really excited the first time they heard on New Zealand radio stories about the Cook Islands or Cook Islands music or Cook Islands people. And what that did for them in terms of feeling like they were really part of this country. And so I think right from then I i started to think about the power of broadcasting in terms of really helping the identity of a place and people who live there. And when I went to join the Board of New Zealand On Air, which was a pretty big step up for me, I realised then that I had an opportunity to influence not only the way that New Zealand sees itself, but certainly the way Pacific people see themselves and the way that New Zealand sees Pacific through the medium of broadcasting. And I think um, we're in such interesting times in terms of the identity of New Zealanders. And I think broadcasting plays a huge role in the the tenor, the tone, um, the way that we think about each other, what we understand about each other. So that's why I like being at those decision-making tables for broadcasting is to have that influence.
0: Mm, Absolutely. And you've talked a lot there also about, you know, the Pacific Islands piece and bringing that perspective in. And and I'm also conscious from having done a wee bit of research, you're very involved in in your local community as well. Tell me about how you've, it's also how you fit that in, but what areas in that you've chosen to get involved in?
1: So if you met my parents, particularly my mother, you would understand that our Cook Islands identity is something that's really important to our family and, and to the wider community that I'm in. And also, I guess, I, I say to people, you know, there's only round about probably 100,000 of us in the world, which makes us quite rare as Cook Islanders. And so, again, I feel a responsibility to whatever I do, to do it well, because there are times when I might be the only Cook Islander that people know or meet, And so, you know, I want to make sure that people understand that, particularly here in New Zealand, as Cook Islanders, we've contributed a lot already and we've got lots to contribute. My friends and colleagues, jokingly but sort of half seriously, refer to me as the founder of the Cook Islands World Domination Movement, which started a little while back when one of our um, fellow Cook Islanders, Adrian Orr, took on the role as the chief executive of the Superannuation Fund, which made him the highest paid public servant in New Zealand. And we were um, mulling over this one night when we were celebrating this with Adrian and a few other Cook Islanders. And we talked about the fact that actually for a smallish community, we've got some people who are really doing well in their fields, but we just don't celebrate it enough as a community. And also, I guess, the wider New Zealand community very really would make that connection to us as Cook Islanders. So we talked about how if we could, you know, get Cook Islanders in every field in the world, how we would be able to take up our world domination mantra uh, as a small community. But it was only, it's its half joking, because I really do believe really strongly that as a community, if you understand the things that you're really good at and you learn to value them, that helps to move you as a community, and particularly move the parts of your community that might not be working as well. So hashtag CIWD has become one of my things, which is to point out, put a spotlight on, celebrate any aspect of Cook Island's success, whatever it is, and share that amongst my own community. And so it means that while I love being at board tables and love governance, it also means that I'm conscious about needing to still be in my own community to know what's happening, to know who's doing what. Otherwise, I can't really be the Cook Islands World Domination founder if I don't know what's happening in my own patch. So bit of a long-winded way to say I'm really proud of being a Cook Islander and proud of the things that we achieve. And so I've taken that up as a bit of a, to be a champion of, of valuing the things that, you know, people in your own community are good at. And it also means for me being as good as I can at the things I've chosen to do, which broadly is to be a really great board director.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And I think that, as you say, championing, celebrating those stories, and really showcasing some of those wonderful role models, I think absolutely is inspiring to to others. A look out for hashtag CIWd then as, <laughs> they, as they as I go through. It's awesome. Karen, you know, if you work through anybody's career, it's never going to be all roses and and easy. There's always going to be some harder bits in there. If you look back at your career, what have been some of your toughest career challenges or moments?
1: Yeah, there are two things that come to mind, and I'm, I'm really glad you're asking the question because I don't think we talk about the fact that it's okay to have tough things happen. So the first thing for me was, and I think this applies to many other women, is just that challenge of feeling like you're putting good quality time into being a parent alongside good quality time into your professional work. I've said to people that I hear people talk about the importance of having balance. For me, it's not so much about balance. It's about having more good days than bad days. And like many working mothers, particularly when my children were younger, um, I felt extreme guilt at um, time I was spending away from them Spending on my professional career. And it really did, you know, challenge me at times. But over time, I've learned to cut myself some slack. And you'll hear me say this quite often, and that there are things that I need to do for myself that actually, in the end, do make me a better mother, I think. But it took me a while to be brave enough to say that to myself and not feel selfish. And the fact that if I'm doing things well in a number of other places, that's going to help me be, you know, a better parent. Took me a little while and um, lots of ups and downs and just finding the right level of energy to be putting into both home and to work. But as I said, just making sure that if I look back on a week, that there's just more good days than bad days. The second thing for me was, I guess, when you lead a really busy life and I like to be fairly organised and fairly planned is what you do when something that was totally out of the blue unplanned comes along and just kind of knocks you for, knocks you for six. And I had that with the, the death of a very dear friend roughly 10 years ago who I was very close to and I've provided support to her child um, since, since my friend passed away. At the time, you know, it was terrible. She passed away from breast cancer. I adjusted my time so I could spend kind of the three years that she actually lasted, spent some great time with her. But when she did pass away, it was devastating. And instead of taking time to grieve, I actually, I did two things. One was I threw myself into my work. And the second thing was that I just concentrated on the important practical things that had to be done, like management of her estate and all of that sort of stuff. But the downside of that is that I didn't give myself any time to grieve. And so I boxed along for probably quite a few months until it all just came to a bit of a head, really. And um, I found myself being finally you know, forced into the state of, of grieving, realising that I had to actually take some time to spend doing this in a way that you know actually gave respect to the relationship I had with my friend. What was tough about it, well, that's tough in itself, but what was also tough about it is that I worried also that somehow if I did this, if people knew this, that I'd be seen to be weak, you know, doesn't know how to cope, a bit of a basket case, falling apart. And I really worried about what this would mean for people's view on me. So my learnings out of both of those things are that, um, and this applies particularly as women, I think we've got to get better at cutting ourselves some slack, that it's okay not to be perfect at everything every minute of the day. She says, looking around at her messy house. And also, that we can be much better at cutting other women some slack. I think quite often of the things that I try to do to support my friends, you know, my working professional sisters out there in the big wide world who all face the same things that I do, but that we can be. We can be much kinder to each other. I think about those two kind of situations quite a lot, and the lessons that I've learned out of them. You need to value the things that you do really well, and you need to be realistic about how many hours there are in the day. And you know, if my friends could hear me saying this now, they'd be roaring with laughter, saying, "Get her! I hope she's listening to her own advice."
0: <laughs> I think we can. We can often, um, you know come up with the the great advice it's much harder to live it ourselves uh you know personally but thank you for sharing both of those and and the point that you made at the start around actually look recognizing that we all go through tough times and that's normal and it's and it's human and that challenge of being a working mum and the kind of the nagging guilt or the sense that we're never quite doing enough for anything um you know I think that's for so many of us so, yes, sits with me, and but also thank you for sharing the story about your your friend um, who passed away. Sometimes life doesn't go as it's planned, and and but actually, recognising that to be able to get through that, you needed to give yourself time to grieve, and that just meant that you were human, not a basket case. So as, as you said, you were maybe worried that that people might think of you. So so thank you for sharing that.
1: You know, I um, I you know, I saw that one of the questions on your list was challenges as a as a woman, and I think largely I can look back over my career today and say, unlike other people who I know have had some pretty horrific experiences in terms of being treated badly because of their gender, I haven't had any of that. But I think what has stood out to me is what I think is extra pressure that a lot of women do feel to be the perfect mother, the perfect everything, and be able to do it all. And over time, I've thought, you know, one of the most useful things I could do for other women is to say to them, actually, it's okay if you can't fit everything into the day. It's okay if your house is messy. It's okay if you just don't quite get there. You know, it's all right. Because I think there are a lot of voices around saying, actually, you've got to be, uh, you know, really, really great at everything. We, um, my partner Mackenzie and I, have got we've got two kids. So our son Mika is uh, 19, and our daughter Kayata is 13, about to start college this year. 13 going on 35 is what we always say in our house. I always think that the best thing that I can you know do for them as a parent is teach them to be resilient and be able to have a range of sort of coping mechanisms, no matter what comes their way. And I think about that with sort of my fellow colleagues as well. I think um, we can all kind of help each other to be resilient. And part of their helping is to not place such huge expectations on people, particularly if they seem to be doing most things right already. <laughs> there is this view that, oh well, if you can do if you can do one thing perfectly, you must be able to do all the rest great as well. Well, it's not always the case. Mm, it's not always the case
0: in that. But talking about the, I think the the pressure that we put on ourselves or who knows or society puts on ourselves as, as working mums. I know I certainly feel that I've got three kids myself who are 10, 8 and 3. And uh, and my house is constantly a total mess. And you know, I sit there beating myself up, up for it. And then as you say, sometimes just kind of cutting yourself that bit of slack and recognising that like, you can't do everything well. Um, but it's been it's I would say it's an ongoing challenge for, for me to work through that as well.
1: Yes, yeah, no, absolutely. But um, in 2014, I did the Global Woman Breakthrough Leaders Program. I just, again, something I just sort of fell into that that came up. And one of the great things about it, the, the program was great, but actually the best thing was I spent a year with a cohort of 19 other professional women, and probably most of them a woman I would, wouldn't have normally come across because they work in bigger corporate firms that I don't have any contact with. One of the things that was great about that time, it was the opportunity to explore how we were as leaders, but also getting right to the crux of how we are as people. That year had a real impact on me in terms of cementing my resolve to be a really great governor and to to start to change the face of governance in New Zealand and what governance practice looks like. And one of the things that helped was just just other fabulous women who, in fact, cut each other some slack. It was really great. And there were the 20 of us and we still support each other now. And we still have extreme pride in the, um, you know, the achievements of each other and share those around. So, for example, um, the wonderful Kirsten Patterson, who's the Chief Executive of the Institute of Directors, or KP as we call her. We've been sort of proudly watching and supporting her career. She's in a, you know, that's a tricky patch there. Uh, The wonderful Anna Kuzin, who's out there in the world of zero. She was one of our cohorts. So I just think that the more that, in a particular woman, can support and celebrate the achievements of other women, that that's just going to help things generally for, you know, for society and also for other women coming through.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I thoroughly agree. And I guess in some ways that's, for me, part of the purpose of this, the podcast itself is to actually let's kind of be loud and proud about some of the amazing women that we have here in Aotearoa, but also recognising that those women aren't perfect, that their careers and lives will have twists and turns and will throw up all sorts of, you know, strange deliveries that mean it can be a challenge as well. And, you know, recognising kind of both sides of that. But that sounds like the, uh, the, the programme was transformational for you in terms of, of your career Now, we talked, Karen, about some of your kind of toughest moments. What about, you know, as you look back at your career, what are some of the things that you're really proud of?
1: Well, um, I'm proud of being able to have moved into a career as a governance practitioner at a time when actually people weren't really doing that. You know, people were being governors or being on boards as a sort of an add-on or an adjunct to what you know to their real job. And I just felt quite strongly about the fact that I wanted to put a lot of energy and effort into being a really great board member, uh, that I wanted to make sure that people from my community could see that that was possible, that you could move into those sort of realms. And I really enjoyed doing it. And so I thought, well, if I enjoy it, I think I'm okay in it. Why would I not do it sort of more full time? And so it was a little bit scary because, again, I looked around. I didn't really see other people doing this. And there was no real blueprint. So I've had to make the blueprint as I go. But I'm, I'm proud of doing that. Um, I can remember the, <laughs> the first time that I described myself publicly as a governance practitioner because I was trying to describe to people what I do. When you say you're a board director, I guess people have a fairly narrow view of what that actually means. I think a lot of people think it's easy being in governance. You know, going to meetings is easy, uh, talking and making decisions. It's it's really the staff that do all the work. But I um, and I've said this a million times before. You know, if you're if you're doing governance properly, it's a little bit like exercise. It should hurt just a little bit. Uh, it should actually instil some pain because that's how you know that you're doing it properly. So I'm I'm proud of moving into a, a field that I didn't see many people moving into in the same way that I was. I've been really proud of some of the change I've been able to invoke uh, on some of the boards I've been on that came about as a result of the combination of things that I bring. Uh, not just my professional skills as an accountant, as an auditor, but my cultural capital as a New Zealand born Cook Islander. Um, my social capital as a, you know, I'm a, when I'm not a Wellington, I'm a suburban mum, wife of a freezing worker, mother of two. And these are perspectives that are just equally as important to bring to the board table alongside my, you know, professional accounting and auditing skills because. Often I am a member of the, you know, the beneficiary of the organisations of the boards that I'm on. Um, I'm the person that the boards are set up to serve. So bringing a provincial perspective to decision-making. So, you know, a lot of my boards, I sit alongside Auckland and Wellington people, uh, great people. But there are things that are just different outside of the big cities. And I find myself becoming a champion for, actually, how would that work in Hawke's Bay? And just so, what I'm proud of is just being brave enough to bring up those views, sometimes very different views to what others might have around the table. And you've got to understand, I come from a culture that doesn't really deal with conflict well. We don't really do that well. And so, at the board table, I've had to develop just some different strategies that enable me to to get over that you know, it's okay to argue and to think of how I constructively make a contribution even if I am in a position where my colleagues and I aren't agreeing. But, you know, I feel really lucky. I've got fabulous colleagues on the board that I'm on. So I do say that some of the lessons I've learned over time have been when perhaps I've had the odd colleague who just has a totally different perspective to mine. And I've learned a lot from that, both about myself and about other people. And the fact that, as naive as it sounds, gosh, not everybody does think like you.
0: Yeah, and I think that is the benefit, but also the challenge of diversity is that you end up having whatever it might be, six or eight people or 10 people around, around a boardroom table. And if you're truly going to embrace that diversity, the people themselves have to be brave, as you put it, to bring forward their very maybe different perspectives. But also, actually, it's going to be some difficult, sometimes some conflict some arguments and challenging conversations because people aren't going to agree. It's not going to be smooth sailing of eight people all with that same perspective around the room. So it's the kind of, it's the opportunity and the, and the challenge of having diversity in the boardroom.
1: Yeah, and I think that's probably um, just as a last point on that, one of the other things I'm really proud of is being able to raise publicly, this is through speaking engagements or through conversations on boards or work that I'm doing in governance, just what real diversity looks like and sounds like at the board table. I think we're having quite an on-the-surface conversation here in New Zealand about diversity, which sort of extends to if you go out and get one of everything, somehow, miraculously, you know, decision-making will be better. And I think there's room to be really peeling that back and get to the heart of the value of diversity and diverse views and how you really activate that value. And one of the things for me is that it means that board chairs have to get so much better at understanding who they've got sitting around them at the table and learning how to bring out the best of the individuals and the combination. And so I I think, you know, over time, what has been traditional governance practice really needs to change in order to make the most of having these different sets of views sitting around the table. So, And that's one of um, of my goals, certainly over the next couple of years, is to change some aspects of governance practice. Um, And a lot of that is driven by the fact that if we don't, we're not really going to make the most of different views, different ways of thinking, different views on governance. And therefore, decision-making is not going to be as great as it, as it can be. So that's my, that's my mission at the moment.
0: That sounds a good one. It sounds an important one as well. You know, that might be the next couple of years. If you think about your career more into the future, have you got any thoughts about where, where your career might take you?
1: Yes, well, I've been thinking about this quite a lot. Because, you know, girls are not getting any younger. I'm 53 now, and I'd really like for at least the next five years to still be making a great contribution to New Zealand governance. So part of doing that is, as well as just being a really good governor myself, there's two things. One is to talk more, write more, and promote more different governance practices and basically encourage, urge people to try them out with a view that I think decision-making, you know, group decision-making can get better as a result of that. The second thing is to make more space for younger governors to develop their own governance practices. You know, if I was um, 26 and, and starting life all over again now, I think I'd be a totally different governor to the one I am right now at the moment at the age of 53. I think I'd possibly be braver. I think I would be a little bit more innovative in how I work with other people or seek other people to be sitting on, on boards that I'm on. So I just think as a current governor, one of the best things I can do is to make that space for other governors to develop different practices as well.
0: Mm, I think it's that's an excellent point of actually, regardless, obviously diversity comes in many, many different forms. Some we can see, some we can't. And age is one of those. And actually, if you look around a typical board table, yes, it tends to be 40 plus that actually the wonderful perspectives that younger people can bring, but also absolutely that we can learn from as well. And so how do we make sure that they're being brave and they're putting their voices forward and sharing their views around the board table? Yeah, fantastic. Oh, it'll be interesting to see what comes of that. Then I look forward to hearing more in, in the future, Karen. One last question then. I'd love to hear what career advice would you have for other women?
1: I'll tell you a story. Our son has just finished his first year of a contemporary music degree at Massey University in Wellington. And since he's been nine or 10, he's been a mad guitarist, drummer, composer, performer. And he's great at it. It makes him happy. And so hence his moving into uh, doing some study in an area that, you know, he really loves, like music. So what's interesting to me is that when I have people inquire of me, you know, oh, what's Mika doing? And I explain that, you know, nine times out of 10, I get a little bit of the, oh, and what kind of job might he get out of that? And my answer has been, well, whatever job comes along, it makes him happy because the important thing for us is that he ends up doing something that he loves that makes him happy and that he's great at. And that's probably my career advice to anybody really is that I've learned over time that um, I, I love being in the governance field. Um, I really enjoy all my boards, I enjoy the people I get to interact with, I enjoy finishing those meetings and knowing that we've made valuable decisions that have moved the organisation forward, and I feel pretty lucky, really, that, you know, 90% of the time, I'm doing stuff that I really love, so that's that's my one big piece of advice. It is the thing about find your passion, and find a way to spend time on that passion and find a way to, you know, this is just being really practical, to be able to express and exercise that passion in a way that earns you some income. Yeah. Um, and for me, that's kind of the the ultimate, really. So, yeah, that's my advice. Do what you love and find a way to make that pay your bills. <laughs> I think that's,
0: that's great advice. And I think, yeah, finding that combination is doing something that you love, but also that you're good at. And finding those two things that come together and finding a way to make some money out of it. It's, it's great advice. It's, um, and something that I think sometimes we lose sight of along the way, as you said, maybe doing things because we think it's a great way to make a lot of money. And actually that's not going to sustain you in the mid to long term. It's not going to make you happy and fulfilled. Yeah. Yeah. Karen, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure for you to share your career journey and some of the ups and downs along the way. I really appreciated it. So thank you.
1: That's all good.
0: I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Female Career Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more inspiring stories of women of Aotearoa and their careers, subscribe to the Female Career Podcast via Apple, Apple, spotify google or wherever you like to listen so that you never miss a story you can also take a look at our website thefemalecareer.com where we feature the stories and if you subscribe to our mailing list you can have career advice and inspiration delivered directly to your inbox thanks for your support and i look
1: forward to you joining us again soon